One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Jenny Offill, author of three children's books, co-editor of two nonfiction anthologies, and two novels, including Department of Speculation, which tells the story of the unnamed narrator whose marriage is dissolving. The story is told in fragments, some as slight as one sentence long. Afil uses exposition and narration, as well as snippets of philosophy, anecdotes of space travel, jokes, letters, memories, lists, and interviews to tell this story. The narrator, known as The Wife, is a writer with one book, a new baby, and a plethora of sorrow. We began the interview talking about how the Department of Speculation changed from a linear narrative into a fragmented one. I worked on the book for a long time, and it was originally... I mean, it was originally conceived of quite differently. It was it was a story. It was a story of a marriage in this original version, but it was um, about a a woman, a young sort of a young student, uh, graduate student, who fell in love with her professor, had an affair with him, and um, you know he sort of destroyed his his marriage and and went off with her. And it was from the point of view of of the the second wife and of the her stepdaughter. Um, and so there was a lot of the same themes about kind of uh, domestic life taking over um, work life and about uh, the fragility of of uh, love and all those things. But it it was it was configured completely differently, and um, it, there was just something about it that I could never get it to be. There just was always these dead spots in it that I couldn't fix. 
I did write it all the way to the end, and we even um, sent it. My agent thought it was fine to send out. Um, we sent it to a couple people, but I had a sinking feeling the minute I let it out of my hands that I should that it wasn't good and I shouldn't do it. Um, so we got back a few notes, people saying, "Well, you know, I, I might go for it, but I think she should do this or she do that." And um, and then I just sort of clutched it to my chest and was like, "No, I'm gonna start all over." Which you know, basically nobody thought was a good idea <laughs> except for me. Um, and then I um, I have a friend who's a poet who was really helpful. Um, he suggested that I just take a hundred things from it, whether they were just like an image or even a word or a sentence, and just put those on note cards and then start over. That was in second. That was in third person. I was I was reluctant to write another first person novel. So I, I had a, I had a lot of kind of doubts about it, but at a certain point I realized that this voice was much, much more exciting for me to write. And um, but the aha moment came a little bit later. In I sort of collected these little bits for a while. These I had this idea that I wanted to write a novel that was a philosophical novel, but also sort of set in a domestic sphere because I don't I don't think there's many novels like that that I've read. But when I um, the aha moment for me was realizing why I was switching around with the point of view because it starts out with a direct address then it goes to a first person and then at a certain point it becomes third person and I realized that the authorial distance was you know matching the um, distance that the narrator feels from from her husband at any moment that for me was the big aha moment because until then I'd, I'd worried that it was kind of a mistake that I was making mistakes um, so that allowed me to kind of go back and figure out how the book was put together. Did you have any fear in writing something that was so untraditional? Oh, yeah. I mean, I had a lot of fear about it. But one thing about having written a, a novel that was more conventional that I that I considered a failure was um, I sort of I, I just wanted to write a book that I that I thought was good. And I, I remember I, I came out of my study and I said to my husband at a certain point when I'd thrown it away, I said, well, I'm going to write this really weird experimental novel and it's going to be short and probably about 50 people are going to read it, but uh, I think it's going to be good. So I'll just make money other ways. He said, okay, hon. <laughs> and then I, then I did that. Um, and uh, the fact that more than 50 people have read it has been a a thrilling surprise, but I sort of thought it was going to be like a, you know, there's certain books that other writers like. I thought it was going to be a writer's writer book, which uh, it's still incredibly exciting to me when I've gotten some nice notes from from writers, and um, especially I love to hear from booksellers and uh, just just super bookish people who who kind of see the precedence that this book is drawn from and and um, have have liked it. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Jenny Afil, author of The Department of Speculation. So Department of Speculation is told in fragments and you change the narrative distance and alter the point of view. And I'm wondering if you wrote it in a fragmentary style or if you wrote it sort of fuller and then pared down. Um, I wrote it in a fragmentary way. It, it wasn't pared down from like some big, larger text. I, I wrote these little fragments. I mean, that 
the hard part was figuring out how they how they went together. It was really late in the game, actually, that I sort of added a plot to it and added the the fair that's kind of the catalyst for the book breaking in half in a certain way. So I had just all these discrete moments. I wasn't sure what they were going to add up to. I knew that I wanted to have this combination of moments that seemed like just daily moments, almost mundane moments, and then kind of these um, more sublime moments. And so I was just collecting both of those for a long time, along with the quotes. But I really didn't have any any sense of how they were going to go together, except just a sense that they were all of a piece with something. There is a narrative arc to this. The woman, the main character, who is single and then meets her husband and then gets married and has a kid, and then there's a fair and they fall apart and they work to reconcile. So there is this narrative arc. But within that are all these fragmentary and poetic moments, as you say, of domestic life and then sort of a more sublime view of humanity and our place in the world. And I was wondering when I was reading it how you did order that, because yes, there's the narrative arc, but some of these pieces, maybe someone could argue it could be on page one or page 10. And Mm -hmm. that seems like it would be painstaking. What was, how did you finally (laughs) figure that out? I mean, it made my head hurt, definitely, to try to figure it out. I mean, it, 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 in the end, it was almost—it was just almost a musical thing. I, I, I knew it was going to be roughly chronological, so that obviously gave me some—you know—gave me something to hang it on. I started, as I was saying earlier, I realized, okay, these pieces that are written in third person, these go here. These pieces that are written in second person go here. So that that also gave me a little bit of a skeleton to the book. But when I say it was like music, it was just that I felt I felt very much like, okay, this part needs to be quiet. This part needs to be loud. It was almost like I would know, I would get to a section and I would know that there had to be a certain feeling in that section or tone or, or just, um, and then I would look through my, my scraps to find one. And I, you know, I did, I did some kind of chance operation things. Some parts of it came together easily and some parts I couldn't figure out. And I printed out the different fragments on paper. I used a hole punch and I, I made them all on separate pages. And then I got a big giant binder and I started just moving them around. But it was a very distinct feeling when it would go in the right place. It, it felt like a click, even though it would sometimes be like not, it was counterintuitive a little bit. Like I'd be like, oh, I wouldn't have thought that would go next to each other. I was very aware that if I did it wrong, the book was going to be too precious or too, um, disjointed or to, I mean, I'm sure some people could argue that it was still either of those things, but um, I felt like, you know, I know why everything's where it is and I know why there's um, space where it is. And, you know, to, so to me, it felt, it felt pretty rigorous, the, the ordering of it. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, We'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world 
but you can't world-proof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I noticed throughout you you do have these themes that keep reoccurring of space and Mm -hmm. Buddhism. And I noticed that you use the word and the concept of animal a lot. And I'm curious about those three things, what your maybe past interest was or what you were thinking about. I didn't know I used the word animal. That's interesting. Um, It doesn't surprise me, actually. Um, I was reading a lot of, like, mystical teachings from different different traditions, which is something I've been interested in since I was about 18 or 19. I I think I came across something where it it was trying to put astronauts it was talking about how no one who's been to space has been able to write about space that well because the sort of person that goes to space is, you know, it's a scientist and engineer by by nature. And um, so the, the, there wasn't that much poetry uh, sort of from it. I thought that was interesting. And then I just got on a kind of a, fell down a rabbit hole of reading about astronauts. And I came across a couple different, like, first-person accounts of people that had gone to space, and I think that sort of triggered it. And then I, I, fell, I found all the cosmonaut stuff and the story of Vladimir Komarov and his ill-fated mission, and, and him talking to his wife as he plummeted down to the earth. And I, I, it was, it was just, it just was very evocative to me of that feeling of being together, but also being apart. And so that started to, and I also want, I wanted a, I wanted kind of a comic. Um, character to contain her sense of like having become kind of a hack uh, writer. So I, I invented the almost astronaut and that, that gave kind of a container for all of the space facts. Um, and the Buddhism stuff, I, I just, I think there's like a lot of interesting crossover between um, Buddhist thought and kind of uh, what it's like to write. And so I'm always really interested. I mean, I'm not a real Buddhist. I'm total like, pretend Buddhist, but um something about kind of that all all emotions and all states of being are inherently interesting and that we shouldn't necessarily privilege, you know, just the happy ones or just the conventionally accepted ones. You know, Buddhism, one of its sort of core teachings is just that you have to accept all of it. And to me, that, that just rings with like what I've always thought of as kind of a motto for writers, which is... Um, I don't know who said it, but it's just way back to the Greeks. Nothing human is alien to me. So that's just where those those interests kind of come in. And the animal stuff, and I've always written about animals. The first book is all about extinction. And I think it's that it's that zooming in and out, which the book does a lot between the sort of the, the micro and the macro. And, you know, to suddenly realize that we're animals or to suddenly realize that we're floating through space. Those are sort of that telescoping moments. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Jenny Afil, author of The Department of Speculation. 
when you were thinking about this book, and it is so much about loneliness and this woman's sort of struggle to, I mean, she never really thought that she would find love, and she does. And then her husband has an affair, and it really rips her apart and causes all these existential questioning in her. Is that something that you think about a lot, in ter- just loneliness? Because it's when you were talking about Buddhism and how there's sort of more acceptable states. I feel mm-hmm. like loneliness is not something that's really socially acceptable to to admit that we feel. Yeah, I think about it all the time. I watched this documentary about the performance artist Marina Abramovich called The Artist is Present, where she went and she sat in the Museum of Modern Art. She just sat there for like 14 hours a day and people could come and sit at the table across from her. Anyway, she just sits there. She sits there and then people lined up and people came and sat and they could sit across from her for as long or as little as they wanted. And she just looks at them. Nothing else is done. And they look at her. And the number of people that burst into tears um, almost immediately, it was so striking to me. And it just, it was almost this, this like um, embodiment really of, of loneliness and of how powerful it is for someone to look at you. And I think that's why why love is is so terrifying for for most people because there's that there's that moment of feeling seen which is exciting and terrifying and then there's that moment for most people if they're in a relationship for a long time of starting to be less seen again starting to fade out and i think it is fundamentally lonely i also think that in american culture there's a lot of ideas about i think loneliness is particularly unacceptable and i think there's a sense that you're supposed to be immediately unlonely once you're married and especially once you have a family that that's supposed to fill that forever i think it makes sense you know the the space in the buddhism makes sense to me because i think this existential loneliness that we feel people look sometimes to buddhism for answers and I think space, which is tied to sort of physics and how did we get here and what did we, were we once part of something else, is it all makes so much sense. And so mm-hmm. it's so amazing how you put it all together in, with, in such a poetic way, but still in such a, a, a regular way in, this, in a marriage that most mm-hmm. people in America experience. Yeah, I, wanted to, I just wanted that combination of... of um of just the everyday and, and, and then the transcendent. Um, you know, parenthood is really that way, in my experience, that it's, it's very, very strange how you can just be there with a dirty diaper one minute and the next minute just sort of having your mind blown, not so much by some something that's been said or by some, you know, kind of hallmark moment, but more just by, by some strange sense that this, that indeed this this is like a creature with a soul, and you're you are charged with um, with raising <laughs> raising this person, um, and it's really kind of amazing. And I think that the the discourse we usually have around it is it it doesn't really allow either pole. Like you can only talk about the the tedium and the the hard parts about it if you do it in a really jokey way. Don't talk about the loneliness of it, and then you can only talk about the 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 happy moments if you talk about them in a sort of cheerful way, not in a sublime way. And the the sublime is actually something that is both both awesome and terrifying. That swing back and forth is really important to me, and and I really like it when I find it in fiction. So I've read that you wander through libraries and read old books to find things. Tell me about that. Yeah, I I go 
to a library, and um, usually a university library, and then I just wander up and down in the stacks in areas that are, you know, not, not fiction, not poetry. I sort of like to find academic books that take something interesting, and usually they just, it's just drowned then in, in academic jargon, but sometimes there's these little cool little pieces of information in them. Like the things I read, it tend to be really dry, um, and it's the very dryness of them that makes the moments that are super interesting to me jump out. They like shine off the page a little bit. It's like, look at me. I'm interesting. <laughs> You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Jenny Afil, author of The Department of Speculation. So I asked you ahead of time if you could prepare a passage from an author that speaks to you or influences you as a writer, and you chose a section from a short story called Car Crash While Hitchhiking by Dennis Johnson. It's always been my tendency to lie to doctors, as if good health consisted only of the ability to fool them. Some years later, one time when I was admitted to the detox at Seattle General Hospital, I took the same tact. Are you hearing unusual sounds or voices? The doctor asked. Help us. Oh, God, it hurts. The boxes of cotton screamed. Not exactly, I said. Not exactly, he said. Now, what does that mean? I'm not ready to go into all that, I said. A yellow bird fluttered close to my face, and my muscles grabbed. Now I was flopping like a fish. When I squeezed shut my eyes, hot tears exploded from the sockets. When I opened them, I was on my stomach. How did the room get so white, I asked. A beautiful nurse was touching my skin. These are vitamins, she said, and drove the needle in. It was raining. Gigantic ferns leaned over us. The forest drifted down a hill. I could hear a creek rushing down among rocks. And you, you ridiculous people, you expect me to help you. When I first read that story... God knows how old I was, probably about 20 years old. I was so taken with the mix of sadness and humor in it. Also, by the the very end of it, where suddenly the wall kind of breaks down and there's this direct address to the reader. I feel like metafictional things like that, so often they just seem like a like a game or a gimmick. But when they really work, it feels like they work so well because there's nowhere else for the story to go, that you've come up against the limits of of what a kind of conventional story can do, and you had to knock a wall out. So I think this book's so influential to me because other than poetry, which I read a lot of, it's probably the first like piece of fiction I read where I felt, oh, you can do that? Can you do stuff like that? And so for me, it became kind of this benchmark of why not write in a way that is exciting to you? I think Dennis Johnson started out as a poet, and one of the things that I like in his in his writing is that he really shows what you can do at the sentence level, and how you can have some of the those those tools of poetry, and yet write in a way that still it sounds as conversational as prose. 
This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Can you read something that you wrote? It could be, you know, something that you found difficult to write or something that you feel you succeeded at. I'm going to read a little passage from the middle that it's after she finds out about the affair. And um, I think it's pretty representative of kind of the difficulties I had throughout of trying to figure out how to balance things tonally, like to have the dark moments and the funny moments and um, also to how do I work in the the text from other places? So I don't think you need to know anything really to understand this passage, except um, that it's after she's she knows about what happened, and also they're going to um, to marriage therapy, which um, she calls the little theater of hurt feelings. Oh, and she's been um, resisting going to yoga for a long time. Chapter twenty four. The wife goes to yoga now, just to shut everyone up. She goes to it in a neighborhood where she does not live and has never lived. She takes the class meant for old and sick people, but can still hardly do any of it. Sometimes she just stands and looks out the window, where the people whose lives are intact enough not to have to take yoga live. Sometimes the wife cries as she is twisting her body into positions. There's a lot of crying in the class for the old and sick people, so no one says anything. But even the wife notices that her teacher is arrayed in light. The teacher takes pity on her and gives her private lessons. The wife tells her about the husband, about how he may or may not love someone else, about how she may or may not leave him. She tells her that they viciously whisper fight at night when her daughter is in bed. She does not say... Last night I pulled his hair. Last night I tried to pull his hair out of his head. It is so easy now for the wife to be patient and kind to the daughter. She will never love anyone or anything more. Never. It is official. She remembers the first night she knew she loved him, the way the fear came rushing in. She laid her head on his chest and listened to his heart. One day this too will stop, she thought the no, no, no of it. Her neighbor's husband fell in love with a girl who served coffee to him every morning. She was 23 and wanted to be a dancer or a poet or a physical therapist. When he left his family, his wife said, does it matter to you how foolish you look that all our friends find you ridiculous? He stood in the doorway, his coat in his hand. No, he said. The wife watched her neighbor get fat over the next year. The Germans have a word for that. Kummerspeck. Literally, grief bacon. Love is the word men use to paper over this. Studies show that 110% of men who leave their wives for other women report that their wives are crazy. Darwin theorized that there was something left over after sexual attractiveness had served its purpose. 
and compelled us to mate. This he called beauty and thought it might be what drives the human animal to make art. No one gets the crack up he expects. The wife was planning for the one with the headscarf and the dark jokes and the people speaking kindly of her at her funeral. Oh, wait, might still get that one. We both felt really bad about it, the husband tells the wife. Oh, the hand-wringing, her best friend says. Do they think they're in a movie? Sometimes the husband and wife run into each other in the park across the street. He is there to smoke, she to stare at the trees. He buttons the three buttons of her coat. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, she thinks. Both have trouble working up the nerve to go into the little theater of hurt feelings. They joke that they should just run off to Mexico together, forget this whole stupid thing. But in they go. It is a designated place for questions. Are you still emailing or calling her? No, he says. Are you still sending her music? No, he says slowly. I'm not sending her music. What? What are you sending her? Just one video, he says. Of what? Of guinea pigs eating a watermelon. What Kant said, what causes laughter is the sudden transformation of a tense expectation into nothing. What the girl said, hey, I really like you. So why did you choose this passage? Because it's the combination of trying to work in the things that are said by other people and also have the narrative flow forward um, about what's happening with the husband and the wife. There's little little jokes in there, like the part about at one point earlier in the in the novel, she's talking about the wife's talking about how she she hates so many things, and one of the things she hates is the, is people that say that they give 110 percent. And so there's a little joke there about I have noticed that that everyone who's dating someone who's left his wife says, oh, but his ex-wife was crazy. His wife was crazy. <laughs> I was just thinking about how there's like never, there's never a wife that is left that wasn't crazy. So just trying to balance the, the mix of kind of sadness and humor there was, was really indicative of what was tricky throughout the whole book. It ended up just being a really rhythmic thing. When do we want to have a shorter sentence? Like there's the moment where she talks about how she thought that you know, maybe what was going to happen to her was she was going to get some illness, and she imagined herself in this sort of noble way, like trying to deal with that. But the very short line where it says, oh, wait, might still get that one. That was actually my editor's favorite line in the book, she said, because she said it just kind of gut-punched her, but it's also a little funny. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Jenny Afil, author of The Department of Speculation. Where do you write? Well, I have a study. I write, I write in my study mostly, but um, sometimes I go and write in a library. And I mean, my, my preferred place to write is to go off to an artist colony and just write for like two or three weeks without having any, any of my real life duties. I, I'm definitely kind of a left to my own devices. I, I like to write in a kind of a bingy way and then not write at all for a while. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I never feel like I'm away from writing, but um, movies are good. Just going out with friends, I think, is probably probably the best thing. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I show it to a friend of mine who's a novelist. 
she's one of the early people I showed to my husband, and then my agent. Those are usually the the first three people that see it. I don't I don't do a lot of showing things till I have a pretty solid draft. And how have you dealt with rejection? Badly, <laughs> I don't know. You know, you get more inured to it, and in a, in a funny way, feeling like like this book that I was trying to write falling apart felt like a really big rejection, but it was surprisingly um, freeing to me. You know, sometimes like you imagine the worst thing that's going to happen, like you're going to work on a book for years and years and years, and it's still not going to be good and not sell. It seems like such a terrible thing, and it is in the moment. But I'm just so glad I don't have that book out now instead of this one, because this one is much closer to my heart. And what is your favorite word? I was thinking about this. This, this question kind of kind of threw me. Um, well, I don't, I can't say that I have like a favorite word now, because I think my favorite word is whatever one fits into the sentence I'm trying to write. But I, I, when I was younger, I definitely had a favorite word. And I would, I would put it in all the short stories that I would write when I was in middle school, and that was defenestrate, <laughs> because I was very excited that there was a verb just about someone going out a window, being thrown out a window, and I would, I would work it into any, any little piece that I was writing. Someone would be defenestrated. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Jenny Offill, author of the novel Department of Speculation. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.